I think that Lewis himself, he, he knows I'm backing you into a corner and I'm walling off all of your escape routes and I'm going to get you back into the corner and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to leave you an escape route. You can just reject God out of hand. You can just be unfaithful, but you're, you're going to do it honestly. You're either going to say, no, God, I don't want it. And that I'm doing it my way. I'm choosing myself over you, or you can submit. You can humble yourself. You can relent. If we do relinquish our self-will, we find we enter into joy. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Joe Rigney. Joe serves as Assistant Professor of Theology and Literature at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He's also a pastor at Cities Church and the author of a number of books, including Lewis on the Christian Life, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God with Crossway. Today, Joe and I discuss the legacy of one of the most beloved Christian thinkers and writers of all time, C.S. Lewis. We talk about how Lewis managed to so brilliantly capture the complexities of the human heart in so many of his writings, what he thought about The Lord of the Rings, written by his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, and what he might say to the American church if he were alive today. Let's get started. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I want to start with what might be an odd question, uh, but of all the books that have come out over the last couple years, which one do you think C.S. Lewis would have been most interested and maybe even excited about if you were alive today? Yeah, that's an interesting question to think about which which books. You know, he uh, he he read so much when you when you read his letters to like his brother and to Arthur Greaves and some of his other other friends, like all of the. The, the letters are oriented by books, what books each of them have been reading, um, what their opinions are of them. And he's such a, an eclectic kind of, kind of author. I think he'd be really interested um, in, uh, honestly, in some of the, the, a lot of the resourcement work going on um, where modern you know, groups are going back and finding um, you know, untranslated works from the Middle Ages and from the mm. Reformation era and just kind of bringing a lot of these books into the the modern. You know, he he at one point said that his one of his favorite things was to kind of um, he, the devotional books that he was most interested in were heavy books of theology that he would kind of have to work through with a you know pipe in his mouth and a, and a pencil in his hand. Um, and so I think uh, when you think about some of those those type of works, I think that that he could very well be interested uh, in in those. Um, and then beyond that, you know, he he read very widely in like science fiction. So I think he'd be interested to see how that genre played out. You know, he was um, he wrote science fiction, um, although it's a little bit a little bit of a different kind than what we typically think of. And so I suspect he would have kept up with that kind of genre um, and to see how the fantasy genre uh, developed. I'd be, I would have been int- I'd be actually interested to, to hear his opinions. You know, if you could actually get his uh, the letters that he would write if he like read like Harry Potter. You know, what what would be his assessment of the way that those stories, uh, because, you know, Rowling and, and others often talk about how the inspiration for what what pushed them into uh, to write, you know, young adult fantasy type stuff was um, Lewis and Tolkien. Like those were those are the books that when you read the acknowledgments of a lot of these authors, it was the uh, Tolkien and Lewis fired their imagination as kids. And they said, we want to do that for other people. And so I'd actually be interested to read how he would uh, evaluate some of the, the modern young adult fiction and whether he would find it boring or whether he would think, wow, this is, this is really good, meaningful, um, Narnia-like um, stuff or, or not. So I think, I think those, are the, those are the questions I'd be interested in. 
Um, as to specific books, I just, um, he read so broadly that I think he'd, uh, he'd find all kinds of things, uh, interesting, but the, the, the flip side of that is, you know, his practice was to read, you know, much many more old books before reading modern books. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the most interesting book that he would read today would probably be something that was written, you know, 500 years ago. Yeah. You mentioned Tolkien and as many of our listeners would know, they were good friends for a long time. Do we know anything about what Lewis thought about the Lord of the Rings? Uh, he, he wrote Narnia, but it's a very different type of fantasy story compared to the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, what did Lewis think about Tolkien's work and the whole mythology that he created? Yeah, so uh, Lewis is basically, I think, the first um, Lord of the Rings fanboy. So you, you actually, the reason that we have the Lord of the Rings, the reason those actually got published was at least in part because Lewis pushed so hard for Tolkien to get it done. Um, and mm. so he read the Hobbit. Um, he read he read the others, and uh, and you know would would push Tolkien to get them get them out, get them done. And Tolkien was such a meticulous world builder that he ne- was never finished. And um, and so one of the re- so Lewis loved the Lord of the Rings, loved the Hobbit in uh, in the space trilogy. Um, he actually does this. I think it's kind of another subtle "Hey, get it done, man" kind of moment where at the end of uh, I think it's actually in that hideous strength. He says, if you want to, he mentions in there Numenor and the true West, mm. which shows up in Lord of the Rings. And he says, if you want to find more about New- Numenor, uh, you need to read the forthcoming books by my friend, uh, Professor Tolkien. And, and it's sort of like the, now, now I've said to everybody that you, you've got these books coming out. Um, I just did your book launch for you. So get it done. Otherwise you're going to get all kinds of letters from people who are going to be saying, Hey, when's that book that Lewis said you were going to, you were going to put out. When's that coming? So he was he was a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. Thought that these were the kind of books that he wanted to read. Now the flip side of that is that that Tolkien hated Narnia, just, just hated it. Um, thought it was a hodgepodge of of mish, mishmash. These characters don't make sense together. You've got this Snow Queen from Hans Christian Andersen. You've got these four kids that are straight out of Edith Nesbit. You know, if you read the Railway Children um, by Edith Nesbit, it's basically like there's the four kids. That's Peter. Uh, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, but just with different names. Um, and so, and then you've got Father Christmas showing up, and then you've got Fawns from Greek mythology. And so Tolkien looked at that and said, it's not a coherent world. Um, and Tolkien didn't like that. And so he mm-hmm. he kind of panned Narnia. I don't know that he ever did it publicly in print, but we know that he did, he wasn't a fan. So Lewis loved what Tolkien did. Tolkien wasn't as much of a fan of, of what Lewis did. So going back to what you said about Lewis mentioning Tolkien, it, it almost sounds like you're saying that there was this extended universe almost with Lewis's work kind of connecting over to the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's world. Is that right? Uh, it was the, I think it was in the introduction to that book where he mentions, if you want to find more about the true West, but there was a dovetailing like that, that Lewis was self-consciously kind of trying to say, Hey, there, there is this, uh, you know, a little bit of a crossover. Um, we're both interested in the same things. We both love in, in that hideous strength. It's the Arthur mythology and Merlin and all that. And, um, and so he was at least trying to say, uh, you know, if, if it's kind of like the, uh, in Narnia, there's the wood between the worlds where, you know, you, you go get the rings and you go into the wood between the worlds and then you can get to Charn and you can get to Narnia and you can get to our world. And then there's all these other places you can go, but there's this, there's this connectedness, uh, of all of the worlds. Um, maybe think of it a little bit like that, um, is that Lewis felt like, Hey, I'm going to mention this stuff in my novel. Um, and if you want to find out more, you can kind of go in the back door and then go into Tolkien's and you can get the fuller, 
the fuller story. Um, it's interesting too on that, you know, the, uh, the space trilogy was originally written meant to be like a collaborative project. So he, he, Lewis was going to write a book about space travel and it was kind of like a bet or something to that effect. Like I'll write a book about space travel, Tolkien, then you write a book about time travel as a sequel. But Tolkien was just so slow that by the time Lewis's came out, Tolkien's not making progress. And so Lewis has to change the, the plan and he writes, he ends up writing sequels for mm. Out of the Silent Planet and finishing the trilogy himself because Tolkien was so bogged down in the minutia of Middle-earth. Um, and, so and so that's one of the things about those two guys, which I think is encouraging uh, at one level, is that they were so different in terms of the, the way that they went about building a world. Um, Tolkien is so meticulous. Everybody, everybody has to have a genealogy. The languages have to be coherent. Whereas Lewis is more fluid, uh, there's still a center. And I think one of the best books on that is uh, Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, where he basically tries to show that that Lewis did have an inner coherence to Narnia that even Tolkien didn't recognize. That Tolkien thought this is just a mishmash of Lewis's favorite things, and therefore it's it's not good story making. Um, but in in reality, there was this deep substructure in Narnia that was there, and that Lewis never told Tolkien, as far as we know, about it, but probably went to his grave chuckling um, about the you know the, the heavenly conversation. When, you know, he finally reveals, hey, man, you know how you thought those books had no center, no nothing tying them all together. They were just these random fairy tales. Guess what I did. And then there's this real unity to them. But mm -hmm. they're so, but they're so different as authors. Um, and, and yet there's this there's this friendship, this common core. But it, it, it's helpful, I think, for us as uh, modern authors and modern readers to know there's not just one way to do this. There's not just one type of personality or one type of style or one type of genre. Like there's, there's um, good writing can extend across multiple genres. Um, and we can still be friends with each other, even if we wouldn't write the same books. As you think back over your own encounters with C.S. Lewis, which book of his have you reread the most times? Yeah. So if I, if I go over my whole life, it's, it's gotta be Narnia, um, just because I read those earliest. And so have had more time. If I was to go back, say in the last 10 years, I would guess that great divorce and probably till we have faces have been the most frequent. And part of that's because I teach those, um, at Bethlehem college and seminary, I teach a course on Lewis and we read uh, great divorce till we have faces uh, and the space trilogy, um, and, and screw tape probably is another one that I've listened. I've listened to that one multiple times. Um, and so in recent years, those have been the ones which are usually not the, the first ones that people think of, you know, it's mere Christianity, it's Narnia, um, screw tapes on that list. Um, but then there's sort of these, what I, I think of as like hidden gems, great divorce, I think is a book that puzzles a lot of people because it's, you know, what happens when you die? And is, does Lewis really think that people can get out of hell and go visit heaven. And he, and he doesn't really like, that's not the point. It's a, it's an, a supposal. It's meant to be like, imagine this and it's going to help you think more carefully about your own life. Um, but I think it's a, it's a brilliant, a brilliant book that that shows through caricatures and exaggerations, the tendencies of our own hearts. Mm. And so I go back again and again to that one because there's just a lot of subtleties of how he develops these characters um, as the main character, you know, is journeying uh, and meeting people who are dead, who are ghosts, um, but who still have a chance in the in the way the story's set up. They have a chance. They could still, if they wanted to, uh, choose God, choose Christ, and be saved. And and you get to see um, stripped of all of the earthly excuses that we make or the, the earthly facade that we put on. 
what the true motivations are underneath and um, to see the rationalizations and, and what people choose, the links to which people will go to avoid God. And, and, uh, and I find it just a, a really brilliant book uh, in that respect. And, and, and it's actually, um, for your listeners, it's a great audio book. The guy who does it, uh, Julian Ryan Tutt, is the narrator, does a great job of capturing the different voices um, and the personalities of the different characters. Um, which really brings it to life. And, and Lewis was a good enough writer that he could, that the different characters have different speech patterns and cadences and, and character to them. Um, and that's a really rich, rich book. Um, the other one that I go back to again and again is Till We Have Faces, which Lewis said um, was his best book. In, in his mind, Till We Have Faces was his best book. It was his last book, um, or next to last, I think Letters to Malcolm came out after he died. But Till We Have Faces was his last book, his last novel. And in his estimation, it was his best. And But in his, his letters, he says, but nobody else thinks that. All of the critics and all of and nobody's buying it. It's not a, it wasn't a bestseller the way that Screwtape was. But he felt like he he had done something in that book that was really good. And, and I agree. When I teach it with my students, it's um, often one of the more uh, influential, paradigm shifting type books uh that lewis that they read in that class because of the way that lewis unfolds this this main character orwell who's um you know it's set in the ancient world kind of uh before christ and and in a pagan land and it has to do with the gods and and uh how a, a you know what would a soul how would a, a pre-christian person relate to the gods and and uh but really it's about human beings and the way that um our natural loves our love of family, a love of friends, our romantic love can derail us and need to die if we're to actually come to God truly. Um, and there's, it's just a really brilliant unfolding um, of the interior of this woman's mind, which is remarkable in itself that Lewis as a man was able to write sort of this very authentic, what feels at least to me, I've never been inside a woman's mind, but um, it feels to me uh, very realistic. And the, and the ladies in my class tend to agree about how she's thinking through things, how she's processing reality the excuses and rationalizations she makes, um, and then this kind of cataclysmic moment where she she things change. I won't give away the ending, but um, but anyway, I, it's a brilliant book, and Lewis lo- thought it was really great. Um, and yet, mo- I, I talked to one Lewis lover friend of mine um, who said he just feels like that book's very gray. It's just it doesn't sparkle the way Lewis's other books do, and uh, and so it doesn't resonate. But I think it's absolutely wonderful. Something you've alluded to a couple times already is Lewis's penetrating insight into the human heart. He he just seemed to get us and he found words to express what's going on in our own hearts and our own minds in ways that I think sometimes we can't even put into words. Where do you think he got that ability to, to cut through the clutter of our hearts and reveal the truth of the issue? Yeah. So according to him, you know, he, he would say, where did I learn to do it's in, I think the preface to screw tape people asked after the book sold so well, I think it was in the, the second edition preface or something like that. Where'd you learn to do this? And he said, I just know my own heart, you know, so there was a, a personal self-awareness element to it. And one place he mentions um, the habit of imaginative honesty and sort of this, you know, refusal to lie to yourself. Um, and I think he had that. And um, and so he recognized when he was making excuses, um, when he was trying to get around obligations and responsibilities. And so he was very dialed in. And, and yet he recognized that his own heart would argue with him about that. And so he 
grew very adept at recognizing those excuses and blame shiftings and justifications that we make for our for our sin and our weakness and our shirking of responsibility. And so he recognized that in his own heart and then was able to go, I don't think I'm the only one. I think I see it in other people too, and was able to then articulate it in a very compelling and clear way. So I think that's one place is just his own heart. I think the other place that he would point to is uh, is books. You know, he said, when when I read books, you know, I'm I'm able to see with other eyes. Like I'm I'm a th- I become a thousand men and yet I remain myself. Um, and so being able to see the world through other people's eyes, so being the voracious reader that he was, um, enabled him to be dialed into the human condition, the human heart in such a way that that was more penetrating than most. And so between books and his own honesty about himself, he had this. Um, I like to say that he, Lewis, I think, is what all of us wish our conscience sounded like. Um, And what I mean by that is he has a way of being absolutely relentless in his insistence on telling the truth and clarifying. So he's not going to let you off the hook. He's not, you know, so when he's writing and he's trying to unfold, this is what you're thinking and this is how you're trying to avoid God. And this is how you justified that. He's absolutely a bulldog and he won't let you go at the same time. Um, he's not vicious. Uh, so he's not a vicious bulldog. He's not, he's relentless, but he's not mean. He, he's more of a surgeon who's going, you know, you know, there's a great scene in, uh, I think it's Paralandra where the main character Ransom is having this inner dialogue that turns out to be more like an outer dialogue with God about whether he's going to do the hard thing that he needs to do the next day. And he's making all these evasions and escapes. And at one point, you know, he feels like he's standing in the presence of this voice and, and the voice is just looking at him and saying, you know, with a look, it's not actually a, a voice, but just, you know, you're on, you know, you're only wasting time, you know, like there's a, I'll, I'll wait. You can, you know, spin yourself out, exhaust your, all of your excuses and let it all peter out. And then in the end, you'll start, you'll, we'll still be right where we are with the expectation that you do the hard thing um, or not. You can choose to walk away. You can choose to abandon your post. Um, you can choose to, to fail. And I'm, I'm giving you that dignity of, of choice, but you're not going to be able to evade it and make an excuse for it. You're going to see it straight on and you're going to choose God or not. You're going to choose faithfulness or not. And I think that Lewis himself in his writings, he resonates so much with us because he's like that. He, he knows, I know what I'm doing. I'm backing you into a corner uh, as you read this essay. Um, and I'm walling off all of your escape routes and I'm going to get you back into the corner, and then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to leave you an escape route. You can just be a coward. You can just reject God out of hand. You can just be unfaithful. But you're, you're going to do it honestly. You're either going to say, no, God, I don't want it, and that's, I'm doing it my way. I'm choosing myself over you. Or you can submit. You can humble yourself. You can relent, and you can enter into joy. I think that was a key part of it is that if, if we do um, relinquish our self-will, we find we enter into joy. And so I think that's, that's part of why he resonates so much is that he, he knows how we work and he's able to box us in, but not in a very, um, not in a mean way or a cruel way or a, I'm going to get you. I know your heart and I'm going to expose you. Um, uh, but more of a, a wise counselor, um, who loves you type of way. So one of the things that I think makes Lewis seemingly unique among a lot of Christian authors is the way that he appeals to such a wide spectrum of Christians from all kinds of denominations and backgrounds and theological persuasions. And included in that group would be theologically conservative Christians, 
evangelicals who read him and appreciate his works a lot, what's something about his theology or his approach to the Christian life that you think conservative evangelicals might be surprised to learn? Whether they'd be surprised by it or not, I, I think maybe um, I, I know the things that bother them or bother me. Um, and uh, and so, well, what, one that may surprise people is that Lewis probably did believe in purgatory of some kind. I think that, um, you know, he was pretty clear that he didn't believe in the kind of medieval Catholic type of purgatory, like temporary hell sort of thing that you find uh, in, in uh, that the Reformation rightly rejected. But some some notion of uh, purification that continues after death, sanctification continues after death. It's not immediate. Uh, he seemed to probably believe something like that. And in, in my book on him, I try to explain what I think he's doing there. So that's a little bit odd um, for someone who's not Roman Catholic, um, but who is a lifelong Anglican. Um, so that, that's a one surprising. I think things that bother people tend to be his um, somewhat dismissive attitude toward the atonement. Um, particularly how it works. So he believes in the atonement, but in terms of the explanation for the way in which it works, like Christ died to um, satisfy the wrath of God that was against us. Um, and so some notion of propitiation or penal substitution, he's pretty, um, he said, he kind of says, man, maybe that's true, but it's not as, it's not very important. And he's, and he's somewhat dismissive of it um, in, in some of his writings, especially in his popular level stuff partly because I think he thinks it may be a stumbling block to people. It was a stumbling block to him. He didn't understand how it worked before he was a Christian. And so I think he's trying to um, say, you need to know that Jesus is for you and that he you know, died in your place. But what exactly that means, you don't have to necessarily figure out. And, mm-hmm. I, and, I, think that, and I think that's unfortunate. I don't, I don't think that that's a necessarily a helpful uh, approach. And, and in the, again, in the book, I try to navigate how I would push on him. And, and because the reality is, is that, you know, one of the most brilliant depictions of penal substitution that I know of is uh, Aslan dying for Edmund in *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. Like Edmund is the traitor. Edmund's blood. You know, he's you know the 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 law, the moral law, the deep magic says he's got to die. Um, he belongs to the the witch now, and that's what the the moral law says. And yet Aslan says, uh, "I've got a deeper magic, and I'm I'm going to die in his place. And if I do that, death starts working backward, and everything comes right." And so, you know, Aslan literally dies in place of he takes the penalty of Edmund. And so that's a beautiful depiction of penal substitution, which we love as evangelicals. Um, and so I think you can, I, if I was having a conversation with Lewis, I would appeal to his own writings and say, hey, you've got all the categories here and you present it beautifully. Why the dismissive comments over here and try to push there? I think the, the only other place, um, the place that I think I found him most helpful as a um, in terms of bringing something that my own tradition tends to not emphasize. Um, so I'm a, you know, young, restless reform type guy. Um, I'm a, you know, Calvinist and, and all of that sort of stuff. Believe this, love the sovereignty of God um, is the way that Lewis emphasizes the importance of human decision-making and choice. And that's something that a lot of Calvinists can be skittish about. You know, we think if, if we emphasize human choice, then that means we're going to de-emphasize um, God's sovereignty. If we emphasize human free will, then we, we lose God's supremacy, something like that. So there's a kind of trade-off. And we say Arminians emphasize the human choice and we emphasize sovereignty. And, uh, and I think Lewis is a great model of trying to you know, um, not lose either one, not let one part of the Bible mute the other parts of the Bible. Um, and so he, in everything he wrote, I think this is, the, this is the central thing that I argue in my book on him, 
is the central thing that he's always trying to do in everything he writes is bring us back down to the present choice, which is always, are you going to um, seek God, put God at the center, or are you going to put yourself or something else there? And that choice is, it has a thousand different faces for every, and everybody's different. Um, but every day you're faced with that choice again and again and again and again. And his, his writing is designed to clarify the choice that you're making and then to encourage and woo you to make the right one, to say that choosing God may be hard. You know, um, choosing obedience to God, faith in God may be really hard. It may cost you everything, but it is so worth it. And, uh, and I, that's something that I've appreciated in my own, I, I think I've detected in my own pastoral ministry over the last, you know, four or five years since I um, began writing that book. And, uh, and so I had to de- do a deep dive into Lewis. I've noticed that I accent that a lot more in my pastoral counseling and my preaching than I probably would have when I was straight out of um, college or whatever. And, and, and it was still kind of on the Calvinist high and loved the sovereignty of God, but was a little skittish about pressing people for decision and choice. Like you, it's all on your shoulders. What you decide in this moment is it matters and it matters to God. Everything hangs on what you do with the gospel right now. And, uh, and I think I've, I've learned from Lewis, we have to do that and that that doesn't undermine or diminish the sovereignty of God. Um, but is, is another element of this great mystery of the Christian life. Kind of along the same lines, if Lewis were alive today and sitting in his office thinking about American Christianity, in what ways do you think he would speak prophetically to some of the cultural issues that we're wrestling through as Christians here in America? If you read uh, Abolition of Man, which is his little book on education, and if you read uh, That Hideous Strength, which is the same content in fairy tale form, um, that's a package deal. He, he says it's a package deal. And um, there's a ton of social criticism and sort of well, what you're talking about with, you know, speaking prophetically about the, the modern attempt to remake the world, world um, technologically, um, to use science and technology to overthrow and to remake what it means to be human. Um, and he, he spotted a lot of t- trends and trajectories that really didn't become evident for another 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, which is why you can read those books and feel like he's reading our newspaper. You know, as mm-hmm. he describes the villains in um, that hideous strength are called the, the NICE, which is a clever little, you know, acronym, NICE, um, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. And, you know, it's this, um, this c- cobble of uh, different politicians and scientists who, are, who all want to remake the world um, and basically tell everybody what to do. And at the behind it all is demonic forces that are trying to destroy humanity. And, and, uh, and then the counterpart to that is St. Anne's on the Hill, which is this little ragtag community of like, you know, an, an injured um, scholar, um, a couple, a married couple, you know, a professor and a housewife, um, a bear, you know, and this Scottish skeptic um, who doesn't even believe in God, but grows really good vegetables, you know? And so like, mm-hmm. that's, that's this like ragtag group. And they're the ones who have been gathered to oppose the entire might of this, you know, scientific, military, industrial complex thing. And, but God's with them. And so they win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's uh, so um, I've actually seen a few essays here and there over the years online 
about basically doing, you know, thinking about culture war in in those terms. Using uh, Jake uh, Medor at Mere Orthodoxy has written, I think, some on this at various times about using the the Saint Anne's on the Hill model of cultural engagement of like we're going to build our own little we're going to we're going to be faithful where we're planted and try to be faithful as husbands and wives and faithful churches very unassuming and then God is going to give us the deliverance against the great uh, might of the states and uh, uh, societal cultural media power and uh, and I think that there's something to that I think that Lewis would probably continue to strike that note in the present, in the present day. Um, and I think he would be, he would be the other, maybe one other issue that he'd, I think be very dialed into is the manhood womanhood stuff. Um, I think he'd recognize that, that, uh, the attempt by modern man to move beyond the natural boundaries of our humanity, um, is a disaster and destructive and harmful to people and would want to help people recognize the goodness of manhood and womanhood, the goodness of, of that men and women are different, that they're both valuable, that they're both essential for God's purposes in the world. Um, and so I think he would very much, and, and I suspect he'd be doing it in surprising ways, not maybe the typical, you know, he, he would come at it sideways because that's what he tended to, he'd write fiction about it. Um, maybe less so than like, I'm going to write, you know, would he sign the Danvers statement or the Nashville statement or anything like this? And I don't know. I, I doubt it actually. Um, but would he write fiction that would try to present the beauty and glory of masculinity and femininity. Oh yeah, he did that, right? He was doing it in his day. He, he would have continued to do it. And, um, and I think that that's where he actually is one of the, he's very potent as a, um, as a teacher is in not just saying this is what's true, but it's true and it's good and it's beautiful. And, um, and, and he draws you into this great dance that he, he portrays in the space trilogy and in Narnia and, um, and other places. If you had one hour to sit down with Lewis today for coffee at a Starbucks and you could talk about one topic, what would you want to talk to him about? Yeah, I should preface this, uh, question by saying, um, I think many people mistakenly think that they would really enjoy an hour with C.S. Lewis. Um, and I say mistakenly because I think they hear his authorial voice, um, and it's and he's he's got a very kind of comforting. I don't know if grandfatherly is probably the right word, but but there's a there's a rapport. You feel like oh we'd be friends. I, I love listening to him talk, and I would like to talk with him. My impression from the biographies that I read is that is that he would he would have I would much rather write him letters about stuff. I think that would be a much more fruitful. We'd yeah. be, we'd both get a lot more out of it. I suspect that in person it would be very awkward, and so I think with people that he was friends with, that that he developed that that relationship with, he was they had great debates and you know the Inklings and Tolkien and Charles Williams and Orrin Barfield and all of that kind of stuff. If you could get to that level with him, man, the, the topics are endless of what you could you could dive into. Um, but as just like, hey, I'm just this random guy. I suspect it would be awkward, um, and mm. some of that would be I'm awkward probably too. Uh, not, not just him. So it would be mutually awkward. And I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan. So that's weird too. Um, but if I was, if I was going to correspond with him, I think, uh, I think two, two topics that would immediately jump out to me was one, the manhood womanhood thing. I would just love to hear him talk more about that. He's, he's so suggestive and insightful, I think, and in, in the way he, he depicts it. And I would just love to probe that a little bit, ask questions, uh, about, Hey, what did you mean by this in Paralandra? Or what, when you, 
showed this and let hideous strength, which is what you were going for. So I think that would be an interesting line of inquiry. Um, and then the other would be actually to, to hear him talk more about prayer. And the reason for that is, you know, one of his last books is Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And, uh, and I just find it a very helpful little book on different types of prayer, the challenges of prayer. And it's a, it's a question that he wrestled with his whole life. Um, he's all, he wrote a lot, number of essays about, you know, if God's sovereign, why pray type stuff and recognize that prayer is hard. And yet that prayer is really important. It's the place where we open ourselves up and say, God, I know you're, God's always there. He's always accessible. He's always with you. He's present all throughout his creation. So there's, you can't escape him, but you can ignore him. Uh, and prayer is the place when you stop ignoring him and actually engage with him as a person. And God then engages with you as a person. And so Lewis thought this is like the meeting place of creator and creature in prayer. And, uh, and I just want to hear him talk more about that and, and hear about uh, maybe a little bit more of the personal side, um, which I think we get in his letters some and we get in, in that book, but I'd want him to open up uh, mm. a little bit more about that. I think the other thing that I'd be interested in doing, th- this would actually be my way in, okay? If I was going um, to have the conversation with him, I would actually want him to read either Live Like an Arnian or Lewis on the Christian life. And I'd want to, and, and then I'd want to argue about it. Did I get you right? Where did I get you wrong? Um, is that what you meant? Is that like, in other words, I think the, the best way into a, to actually a, a fruitful conversation with him would be to, to make it less uh, personal at the front end and more about ideas, more about, con- you know, objective content that we can like discuss and, and kind of lose ourselves in the, in that aspect, like we're not thinking about each other as, as uh, you know, how's your heart, man, that, that kind of level, but more about, is this the truth about this issue? Did you get that right? What do, were you right about the atonement? Or would you say that God is sovereign in this way? Like, and to actually get into the, the debate, I think that that would probably uh, develop a, a friendship more quickly with a, with a man like him uh, than anything else. Joe, thanks for joining us on the CrossFit Podcast today and for sharing a little bit about your own journey with C.S. Lewis. Well, it's my pleasure. I love, love talking about Lewis uh, and love, uh, love exploring these topics. That was Joe Rigney on The Legacy of C.S. Lewis. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Lewis on the Christian Life, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.